Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the sound of resistance. This time the focus is on war. things that are going to be different with this particular inappropriate conversation. It's going to follow the same format as the previous show and a few more shows to come. But I think that first one, Sound of Protest, was both a little serious, and it's not that there's not going to be serious content in this one, but it might have a little bit more of a variety to it, including both the intro and the outro music. In other words, it's kind of my way of saying that I'm not sure I take Jefferson Airplane's call to revolution all that seriously, and I certainly don't take the music that I'm going to play at the end of the show to play us out all that seriously either. The other thing is I'm going to play some hits. It's uh, probably, generally speaking, true, more true than false, that in the first of this series of shows, I was playing more obscure songs, and there will still be some songs that I imagine most people haven't heard, both today and throughout the rest of the Sound of this Music of Resistance series, and this in particular, the Music of Resistance show, was the first one that I thought to do when we get to the different drummer. We'll be dealing with songs that I think most people who enjoy rock music have heard before, because the different drummer is a prominent musician, and you'd expect a lot of musicians or songwriters creeping into the uh, different drummers of this particular set of shows for all the obvious reasons, because songwriting plays such a big part. And I don't want to take a pot shot at Jefferson Airplane as a group, but I'm not sure that I find quite as much compelling in the lyrics like, look what's happening out in the streets. Hey, I'm dancing down the streets. Oh, ain't it amazing all the people I meet. One generation got old. One generation got soul. This generation's got no destination to hold. Pick up the cry. Uh, I don't know that this is the revolution that I'm kind of referring to when I'm talking about refuse, resist, and protest. But 
it does have the advantage of being familiar. I'm going to get us started right off the bat with a little bit less talk and a few familiar songs strung together to kind of bring us into this idea of the sound of protest, protesting against war, protesting against the forces that would lead us to wars that don't make sense, which seems to be where we're heading right now, at least at this stage of this particular Republican administration and Republicans in both houses of Congress, the uh, Senate and the and the House of Representatives, because people who are in key leadership positions throughout these different branches of government have had harsh words. Have you know Trump during the campaign openly questioned why we as a nation hadn't used our nuclear arsenal since it's so powerful? It's a time of year when we might want to be calling back to the 1960s and kind of remind this country that you didn't just have to roll over and sort of play dead if you didn't agree with the political decisions that were driving life-and-death consequences for young people in war. Some of these songs are going to be directly about war, some about very particular wars, and I'm going to get to that in just a bit when I bring in the uh, European perspective, particularly the, the British perspective on unnecessary war and the consequences. And a couple of things I'm not going to do. Uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, Black Sabbath war pigs. I easily could. But I kind of highlighted that as a song a couple of Halloweens ago. So it's not like Inappropriate Conversations hasn't looked at Black Sabbath and the lyrics from Warpig. Might have been looking at it through the lens of a tribute album or a different band performing the work. But no, I want to start off with the genuine article. Let's take a look at Creedence Clearwater Revival and Guns N' Roses. And we'll start ourselves off with Buffalo Springfield, which is perhaps one of the most iconic sounds of that late 60s era. The... uh, disaffected nature of feeling like something bad was happening and that there wasn't a lot that could be done about it, but that that generation was going to stand up and do something about it. And this will be a tie-in to our different drummer as we get there, because when I first strung together this set of shows, the music behind ideas like protest and resistance, Neil Young was the first different drummer I thought of. Seemed like the obvious choice. We'll get to the reasons in the different drummer segment. And I only bumped him aside because I really thought the V for Vendetta sound clips, which were strung throughout the first of these shows, was maybe more to the point, maybe more relevant. And it's kind of interesting because when I walk down the street listening to my MP3 player, uh, the sound clips are there. They are, I hit the shuffle button and they're just a piece of the sort of the DNA of the 16 to 17,000 tracks they mix together and pop up unexpectedly. And of course, here in this series, I've tried to make them pop up in a more targeted way. We'll see how it goes. But first, for what it's worth, Buffalo Springfield. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's bad lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance 
from behind Every time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's blowing down What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and they carry inside Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Paranoia strikes deep to your life it will creep It starts when you're always afraid Step out of line The man come and take you away We better stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Better stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Better stop Now, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. I don't like it.
peace could last forever. And in my first memories, they shot Kennedy. I went numb when I learned to sing. So I never fell for Vietnam. We got the wall of the sea to remind us all that you can't trust freedom when it's not in your hands. When everybody's fighting for their promised land.
so civil about war anyway. When I first heard the song Civil War by Guns N' Roses, it was before Guns N' Roses had completed the concept they had behind Use Your Illusion. In other words, they hadn't released Use Your Illusion 1 or even perhaps even realized they needed to have a Use Your Illusion 2. It was released on a tribute album called Nobody's Child, a fundraiser to provide relief for the orphans that were being, uh, well, first off, overwhelming the uh, systems inside the country of Romania, and as a result being neglected, because Nikolai Ceausescu put in what, I think from the American religious rights perspective, one of the greatest pro-life governments in the history of the world. I say this sarcastically. I, in fact, I'm a little bit embarrassed the sarcasm didn't come dripping through my voice a little bit more pungently. It was absolutely the American religious right playbook for what ought to happen. Abortion being made strictly illegal. Miscarriages investigated as if they're potentially a criminal act. Uh, women and doctors threatened with jail time for any sort of exceptions to the law. The massive increase in not just pregnancy, but unwanted pregnancy, which leads then to a massive increase of orphans in an orphanage system that was naively unprepared for the inevitability of the consequences of that. 
And then if you're familiar with the uh, concepts in the book's Freakonomics, you come along 15, 16 years later, and now you have a massive increase in crime and delinquency because the nobody's children of that Ceausescu era grew up with just as poor prospects as teenagers as they had when they were born, and the results of that is going to lead to crime and violence. And so all of this creating a real economic crisis, uh, first in the, in the form of how do you take care of uh, very young children in a system that wasn't ready for the consequences of all sex ends and pregnancy, that mentality. And then, of course, later, the ripple effect that I'm sure Romania, to some degree, is still feeling to this day. So a group of artists got together and put together a tribute album. It was very uh, high-profile recording, and I'm wondering how many people remember it today, because as somebody who was you know, at least interested in the music of Guns N' Roses, maybe not the biggest fan in the world, but certainly not the opposite of that. I, I liked Paradise City. I never bought Appetite for Destruction, but it was on my mind. If Lies hadn't been such a weird album, uh, you know, with its half and half in nature, I might have jumped in at that point. Where I did jump in, though, was this particular song, Civil War. And, you know, lyrically, you can expect Guns N' Roses to be simple and straightforward, and they are that. I just appreciated the fact that they chose to stand up and speak. Of course, when it comes to being simple and straightforward, Creedence Clearwater Revival could be described that way as well. But CCR, to my mind, in Fortunate Son, put the anger of Black Sabbath war pigs into a very direct sort of second-person conversation with the powers that be. Both those songs looking at the issue from different sides of the Atlantic Ocean of people who are privileged, cushy, uh, not going to be asked to pick up a rifle and fight, probably going to be able to protect their children from being asked to pick up a rifle and fight. Uh, thinking of the uh, the Trump family in general over a couple of generations are good examples of this. Nevertheless, uh, warmongering and putting us into unnecessary conflicts where diplomacy has not been sufficiently tried or our diplomatic skills have diminished greatly from one presidential administration to another, and the result is war. Both of the Bush administrations, for example, we ended up in wars because of failures of, di of diplomacy. And frankly, the Clinton administration had its fair share of military conflict where I was wondering at the time that it happened, was that military conflict truly necessary from the perspective of international diplomacy, or was it an opportunity to appear more centrist by doing a little of the equivalent of saber-rattling? You know, kind of hard to say. We ended that set with the spoken word from the Hunt for Red October, the one ping only, one of my favorite moments in that film. And it is ironically one of my favorite war films. But again, a war film that from end to end is built around the concept of doing what is necessary to avoid war. And of course, you know, there were violent deaths in the film, a submarine sunk, you know, by the mistakes of its own commander, uh, all hands on deck lost, that sort of thing. So it's not like there wasn't a body count in the hunt for Red October, but in many ways it was very much an anti-war movie. Of course, my favorite line of dialogue from that one is the one that was uh, on board the uh, the carrier, where the commander of that ship is telling the Jake Ryan, the Ryan character, that a Russian don't, make, don't take a dump without having a plan. <laughs> That's my favorite moment. The other thing I wanted to do here was uh, continue the trend of adding more songs to the content of each one of these shows, despite the fact that they're already pretty long by a normal inappropriate conversation standards, but adding content simply by referring to songs. So this would be the perfect place for a song like The Animals, We Gotta Get Out of This Place. And when I think about that particular track, I think about it more from Blue Oyster Cult, but despite how much I like the Blue Oyster Cult live version in particular from Some Enchanted Evening, 
encore of that concert, if I'm not mistaken. It really is the animal's version that ties you into the mentality, the grit, almost, of the Vietnam War era. And in some ways, the place that they've got to get out of is either Southeast Asia and the conflict in Vietnam, or the circumstances in America that seem to inevitably to send many people there. we got to get out of this place. The other one I wanted to name drop is a song that I'm not going to play, and I'm not going to play it for a variety of reasons, and I think the way I describe it is that I don't think Metallica deserves to be recognized on this series of podcasts. Not because the music is unworthy or the lyrics are unworthy, but because the band's attitude toward uh, their fans and toward critics is, makes them unworthy. And there are probably are more than one Metallica uh, songs that I, you could think of that would be you know, qualified for this particular topic, even focused as narrowly on war quali- and qualified from that perspective. But the one that jumps out to me, the one that I would be trying to feature if I decided to change my mind at the last minute and go there, is off Masters of Puppets disposable heroes and to me that's kind of ties in with the theme here the first part of the show that we often too often treat people as if they are pawns in our game of chess to quote the black sabbath lyrics uh, or the disposable heroes that can be uh, moved around and dispensed with as necessary so biggest problem here from a the concept of resistance of being a war resistor is that you have to measure, and I think it's appropriate in a democracy for every citizen to be measuring this. What is the worthiness of the cause? What are the circumstances that led us into a military conflict? How could that conflict have been managed in another way? And how is the war itself being executed and implemented? Are we failing? In the case of of Middle Eastern conflicts, were we drumming people who were good at speaking multiple languages and interpreting multiple languages out of the military because of who they loved, or what relationships they were in, or things that really didn't have anything to do with their ability to function as a as a code breaker. This, of course, is a callback to Alan Turning and the World War II situation in Great Britain. I'd say it's appropriate to resist any conflict where the conflict is being executed that badly. So even if you believe in the cause, and it feels as inevitable as World War II, and that the entire nation is behind it, once you start compromising your ability to win because of decisions that have absolutely nothing to do with military goals, that uh, that you don't have an achievable plan, when those things start creeping in, then I begin to object. It's one of my principal objections to the war on terror. How will you know that you've won a war against an idea? It's almost impossible to calibrate what victory in that situation looks like. But the other end of the coin is whether the war itself is actually necessary, whether there's an essential goal to be accomplished by doing it. And really, some of the best war music to come out here in the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, came not from a conflict the United States was directly involved in, but from one that Great Britain was directly involved in. I want to start us off on a series that focuses directly on um, the conflict between England and Argentina in the, in the Falklands War. I begin it with an American perspective, which is really more of a pot shot at the Reagan administration's collusion with the Thatcher government. But from there, we'll focus pretty narrowly and pretty directly on Margaret Thatcher, decisions she made, and how some of those decisions were questionable, and to look at it from the perspective of musicians. Let's start with Dead Kennedys. Kinky sex makes the world go round.
Minister's office. Prime Minister speaking. Greetings. This is the Secretary of War at the State Department of the United States. We have a problem. The companies want something done about this sluggish world economic situation. Profits have been running more than a little thin lately, and we we need to stimulate some growth. Now, we know that there's an alarmingly high number of young people roaming around in your country with nothing to do but stir up trouble for the police and damage private property. Doesn't look like they'll ever get a job. It's about time we did something constructive with these people. We've got thousands of them here, too. They're crawling all over. The companies think it's time we all sit down, have a serious get-together, and start another war. The president, oh, he loves the idea. All those missiles streaming overhead to and fro, napalm, people running down the road, skin on fire. Soviets seem up for it. The Kremlin's been itching for the real thing for years. Want a little going away present for Mr. Brezhnev? Well, Afghanistan's no fun. So what do you say? We don't even have to win this war. We just want to cut down on some of this excess population. Now look, just start up a draft, draft as many of those people as you can, we'll call up every last youngster we can get our hands on, and give them an hour or two to learn how to use an automatic rifle, send them on their way. El Salvador, another Northern Ireland or a moderately repressive regime in South America. We'll just cook up a good Soviet threat story in the Middle East. We need that oil. Libya, all ready to go, and Colonel Gaddafi's hit squad didn't even show up. I tell you, that man is unreliable. The Russians had their finger on the button just like we did for that one. Now just think for a minute. We can make this war so big, so big. The more people we kill in this war, the more the economy will prosper. We can get rid of practically everybody on your... Uh, Dole cues. We plan this right. Take every loafer on welfare right off our computer rolls. Oh, don't worry about those demonstrators. Just pump up your drug supply. So many people have hooked themselves on heroin and amphetamine since we took over. Just like Vietnam, we had everybody so busy with LSD they never got too strong. Get the war functioning just fine. It's easy. We got our college kids so interested in beer, they don't even care if we start manufacturing germ bombs again. A nuclear stockpile in their backyard, they wouldn't even know what it looked like. So how about it? Look, war is money. The arms manufacturers tell me unless we get our bomb factories up to full production, the whole economy is going to collapse. The Soviets are in the same boat. We all agree the time has come to the big ones. So what do you say? That's excellent. We knew you'd agree. The companies will be very pleased.
fucking world! You're listening to LBC Reports. It's 13 minutes to four. And no doubt you've been hearing in the news today or during the course of LBC programmes that the Attorney General has been asked to prosecute an anti-Falklands war record under the Obscene Publications Act. Here's a sample. Well, Conservative MP for Enfield North, Tim Egger, says... It starts off, the last song starts off with the words, you shithead, slimy, got it all. And then it gets worse from there. All right, you dirty horrible luck, get your bleeding air, cat! No, sir, I won't. <laughs> Wonderful dream 
That was a big enough combination. I feel like I should rattle off just the titles again. Remember beginning with Dead Kennedys and almost a performance art piece for them called Kinky Sex Makes the World Go Round. I heard that first on a national public radio station, as a matter of fact, after midnight, a late night show in the in the college NPR branch where I went to university. And of course, they played a lot of punk music. The show was called Third Rail. And that was one of the songs that they featured in the first few shows that they did all the way back in the mid-80s. 
Followed that up with Pink Floyd, Get Your Filthy Hands Off My Desert, from the final cut. Crass, How Does It Feel, and Sheep Farming in the Falklands. More about them in a minute, we'll talk some lyrics. And finished it up with Morrissey, from his first solo album, last song on that album. And you don't think of Morrissey, first and foremost, for politically focused lyrics, but make no mistake about it, Margaret on the guillotine is not talking about just any old Margaret. So, uh, how do I want to handle these? Uh, first, a, a funny Pink Floyd story. I was at a party in my apartment, still back in college, back in those days, and is the person who was primarily the DJ, for want of a better word, responsible for the music, often the bartender, sometimes when you're engaged in that activity, where you're making sure you're on top of what's playing, and you're also mixing the occasional drink, you don't get as far along with your own personal indulgences. You're not drinking as much, maybe, as you would be if you were simply part of the crowd or part of the audience, for want of a better word. And my roommate, my uh, the guy who actually shared the same room in this apartment with me, uh, was four guys, two bedrooms, two in each bedroom, that kind of situation. Uh, he was pretty far along. He was pretty far gone. And he was a prankster, practical jokester. So it wasn't often that you had the chance to get him back from a practical joke perspective. But on this night, I did. Because I had queued up on the turntable and was primarily working with CD, but I queued up on the turntable. Pink Floyd, the final cut, side two. And even a few seconds into it, because I wanted to be able to hit that bomb blast at a moment's notice. And at one point, my roommate went back into the bedroom. He was going to grab something, and I noticed that he hadn't turned the light on. So he was searching in the dark for whatever he was looking for, a book or something like that. And I uh, dropped the needle, flipped the speakers from the A side to the B side, and for the first time was routing sound into the bedroom, but just the bedroom, so I could crank it up to an extremely high volume, take risk with my own personal speakers and not my roommate's speakers in the main room. And uh, that bomb blast at the beginning of Get Your Filthy Hands Off My Desert was loud enough that it rattled our windows, um, sent Mark crashing to the floor, crawling out of the room on his hands and knees. Game, set, match. For one of the very few times, I was able to get the best of him. But the lyrics really speak to the accusations that all of these songs are leveling to Margaret Thatcher and her handling of that conflict. Brezhnev took Afghanistan, Begin took Beirut, Galtieri took the Union Jack, and Maggie, over lunch one day, took a cruiser with all hands, apparently to make him give it back. So, sort of a bemusing complaint, and there are complaints throughout that Final Cut album. Falkland's War plays a big part in the lyrics of that latter stage of the the uh, Roger Waters incarnation of Pink Floyd. But the lyrics I want to highlight instead are crass, because these are lyrics that actually got the band in enough trouble that they were under threat of being charged with uh, obscenity laws by the government. And don't get me wrong, there are, are profane lyrics in the song, but if you applied an American standard to it, I think that even if you find crass as a group of musicians to be ugly and confrontational and in-your-face and uh, cacophonous and hard to listen to, I think they'd be sitting there with a pen on paper checking all the boxes saying mission accomplished. They got done what they wanted to get done. But they're also telling a story and raising a complaint of relevant political concern. So, I mean, the key lyric for me is, how does it feel to be the mother of a thousand dead? Young boys rest now, cold graves in cold earth. How does it feel to be the mother of a thousand dead? Sucking eyes, lost now, empty sockets and futile death. Your arrogance has gutted these bodies of life. Your deceit fooled them that it was worth the sacrifice. 
Your lies persuaded people to accept the wasted blood. Your filthy pride cleansed you of the doubt you should have had. That kind of lyric. And of course, they begin one of their versions of sheep farming in the Falklands with uh, BBC clips of the news stories about the accusations being leveled against the band. And I think ultimately the way it played out was that the biggest obscenity, at least in my opinion, my perspective from an ocean away, the biggest obscenity was not the choice of words Crass was choosing to use to complain about Thatcher, but the things that they were complaining about, meaning that the you know, political relevance of the lyrics outweighs the choice of words, not profane. That is certainly what would be ruled in the United States in a similar situation. It ties in, frankly, with the obscenity case about James Joyce Ulysses for almost exactly the same reasons. And I say that fully acknowledging that Crass can't make a claim that they are art in the same way that James Joyce is art. But anybody who's ever asked me about my music collection, and as a Christian, how can I feel so comfortable with a band with such strong anti-Christian views, holding a place, having a a greatest hits collection, best before 84, sitting in, in the list of things that I listen to? And the bottom line is, first off, I appreciate their anger. I respect the honesty of their opinion. And the bottom line is, it's better to be listening to those who especially are raising clear and pointed arguments than it is to ignore them because we only have to pay attention to people who agree with us. There's a through line here, I suppose, between the take it to the streets mentality of Jefferson Airplane and Buffalo Springfield at the beginning of the show in the 1960s, and then you come along to the very early 1990s and you have this new sort of new world order kind of idea and opposition from both the right and the left to the centrist nature of the first Bush's presidency. That manifests itself in another resurgence of appropriately angry lyrics, uh, perhaps one of the anthems of that period. The anthem most relevant to this show was Neil Young. He had a part to play in groups like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Buffalo Springfield. And he also released the anthemic Rockin' in the Free World right at that point in history.
So Neil Young plays us in from with a song off his Freedom CD, Rockin' in the Free World. And a song that I think I've heard a lot of people in interviews say brought Neil Young back into their attention. I'm going to cover some basic ground with a different drummer here, uh, do a little bit of history and background. And I think one of the things that's going to come out of that is that Neil Young as an artist produced such a varied body of work that it wouldn't be surprised if the people who ultimately would be the fans of grunge music might not initially notice the history of rock, and Neil Young in particular. But Neil Young, through that song, Rockin' in a Free World, brought it to their attention. So let me first start with a few things I'm not going to do in relation to Neil Young. He's going to be one of those different drummers who perhaps doesn't get a broad, full perspective in a different drummer segment, because I am going to focus specifically on protest music with him. It won't all be war songs, per se, but it will be it will all be protest songs, meaning some of my favorite work by Neil Young is going to be left out. Uh, my favorite album is probably Harvest. I have a soft spot for uh, songs on the Harvest Moon album as well. So if you look at him from this soft sort of folk and country and Americana side versus the uh, angry electric rocker side, some of my favorite things are not going to get a shout out in this different drummer segment. I probably won't be referring much of it all to After the Gold Rush or Harvest or my favorite, Out on a Weekend. My affection for the song Old King of Harvest Moon is a story that will probably have to be saved for another day. Because instead what I want to do is look at Neil Young as somebody who wasn't hesitating to pick a few fights along the way, to make a few bold statements. And perhaps most famous of all those would be his uh, conflict, and I put that in quotation marks, between him as a band and Leonard Skinner as a band, with the song Southern Man, uh, Neil Young from a, a genuinely Canadian perspective, looking at the American South, raising questions about uh, lynchings and the Klan, burning crosses, you know, wanting slavery back, uh, opposition to inter interracial relationships, not even just romantic interracial relationships, but inter interracial relationships across the board, pinned a, uh, to me, one of the still really important anti-racism protest songs in Southern Man.
course, I don't think it's fair to say Neil Young was picking a fight with Leonard Skinner. It was Leonard Skinner who fired the first shot in whatever conflict there was between them. In the song Sweet Home Alabama, saying uh, uh, Neil Young should remember a southern man don't need him around anyhow. The fact of the matter is, Neil Young being uh, music first, I suppose, art first, basically dismissed any notion that there was some feud between the two, saying he liked the song, thought uh, Leonard Skinner to create a pretty good chord progression there. As I tend to do in different drummer segments, crowdsourcing the biographical material, let me share just a little bit of Wikipedia, and then I want to jump in a more music critic direction for the the rest of the things I want to kind of cover from other uh, writers on Neil Young. Young is a Canadian singer-songwriter, musician, producer, director, screenwriter, uh, he began performing, uh, covering Shadows Instrumentals in Canada in 1960. And in 1966, after a brief stint with Rick James and the Minor Birds, he moved to Los Angeles, where he formed Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Stills and others. Young had released two solo albums by the time he joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash in 1969, in addition to the two as a member of Buffalo Springfield. And his early solo albums, and those with the backing of his band, Crazy Horse, Young has recorded a steady stream of studio and live albums, sometimes warring with his record company along the way. Fair to say, on occasion, he's done some warring with his bandmates along the way. His relationship with Stephen Stills had its fair number of ups and downs. That's from Wikipedia and the uh, biography on Neil Young. I want to instead go to allmusic.com and the biography there written by Stephen Thomas Erlewine. I think it cuts directly to the Neil Young solo career. I'm assuming that allmusic.com has separate mentions of the biographical material for the previous groups he was in from the groups as a whole. But before I jump there, just a quick list that I think is interesting is the people that Neil Young is credited as being associated with, the Squires, the Minor Birds, Rick James, mentioned them. Buffalo Springfield and CSNY mentioned in that uh, Wikipedia article, along with Crazy Horse. But then from there you get the Stray Gators, the Steel's Young Band, the Ducks, Northern Lights, Pearl Jam, Booker T. Jones, Leon Russell, Elton John, and more. That even, the, even if I rattled off three or four names and tried to complete the Wikipedia list, is I'm sure not a comprehensive list. Here's what Erlewine says on uh, allmusic.com. After Neil Young left the California folk rock band Buffalo Springfield in 1968, he slowly established himself as one of the most influential and idiosyncratic singer-songwriters of his generation. Young's body of work ranked second only to Bob Dylan in terms of depth, and he was able to sustain his critical reputation, as well as record sales, for a longer period of time than Dylan, partially because of his willfully perverse work ethic. From the beginning of his solo career in the late 1960s through to the 21st century, he never stopped writing, recording, and performing. His official catalog only represented a portion of his work, since he kept countless tapes of unreleased songs in his vaults. Just as importantly, Erlewine continues, Young continually explored new musical territory, from rockabilly and the blues to electronic music. But these stylistic exercises only gained depth when compared to the two primary styles, gentle folk and country rock and crushingly loud electric guitar rock which he frequently recorded with the California garage band Crazy Horse. Throughout his career, Young alternated between these two extremes, and both proved equally influential. There were just as many singer-songwriters as there were grunge and country rock bands claiming to be influenced by Neil Young. And despite his enormous catalog and influence, Young continued to move forward, writing new songs and exploring new music. That restless spirit 
ensured that he was one of the few rock veterans as vital in his old age as he was in his youth. Young has been uh, inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, once with Buffalo Springfield, once as a solo artist, and I would not be surprised if it is not his last induction into that particular body. So, you know, Neil Young, from a songwriting perspective, tremendous depth. As that biography page on allmusic.com sort of said, there's more that I could possibly get to if I chose to. You could make an argument from the Ark Weld album, the Ark side of that, as a matter of fact, that Young, in many ways, was not only bringing grunge into to the fore and giving credibility to that movement from the previous generation, but also engineering something of a Sinek Youth-inspired callback to Metal Machine music, as a matter of fact, and the, uh, the Lou Reed double album of that name. Ark has at least uh, stylistic similarities to metal machine music. So I'm not going to go to that direction because I want to focus on the words. I want to focus on the lyrics. That's really what it's all about from my perspective. When we're talking about the music of protest. It's not that there aren't instrumentals. I shared one in the previous inappropriate conversation. But from a, the question of resistance and war resistance in particular, the lyrics have got to be crucial and foremost. But here's a tribute in my mind to Young. You can almost tell how good the songs are when you look at how well they've been remade. If an interpretation of one of Young's songs could be done by himself with Crazy Horse in an angry sort of electric guitar style, and that same song with the exact same lyrics could be delivered as a mournful reminiscence by Cowboy Junkies, you know you're onto something. Among my favorite of Young's lyrics uh, are the lyrics to Powderfinger not set in a very specific period of time, not necessarily aligned directly with a particular conflict. But as I read the lyrics, as I hear the song, there's a war going on. There's some people in the backwater who are in no way directly impacted by it, but one of the ships comes up the river in their direction. Look out, Mama, there's a white
It's simply a beautiful track. We live in a wonderful time where looking up lyrics in occasions where lyrics are hard to hear has never been easier. I'll be the first to acknowledge there's probably a greater risk of adware, malware, and other kinds of nonsense on lyrics sites than others. But if you've got a good you know, web protection, a good you know spam blocker, an adware blocker, it's pretty easy to go to the internet and Google your way into show me the lyrics for Powderfinger and get the lyrics as written. I think that it works just as well as a poem on a page as it does delivered in either the very disparate singing styles of Neil Young and Crazy Horse or Cowboy Junkies.
of course, no different drummer segment, with Neil Young being put forward as a voice of war resistance could be uh, complete without a mention of the song Ohio. This was a song that, by all accounts, was written almost immediately after Young became aware of the news of the events at Kent State University in 1971, where four people were shot dead by National Guard and the government, for want of a better word, because the government had decided they'd had enough of their protests. And you can you could raise the complaint that a song like Ohio, written in the very early 1970s, is not relevant today in the late you know, 2000 teens, but that clearly is not the case. Just recently, shortly after January this year, some you know, elected official somewhere was complaining about people who were hitting the streets, angry, protesting the Trump government or specific decisions made by the Trump government, and very willing to continue repeating the call that this man did not have any sort of mandate to lead. He did not win the popular vote. He may have had illegal information, or certainly um, shenanigans and hijinks, not to use too dismissive of a term, with help from foreign governments and even winning the key swing states that he won to secure the Electoral College vote. Some you know, elected official, presumably Republican, responded to that by saying that the best way to deal with these protests was to shoot a few people. It certainly worked in Ohio back in the early 70s. Now, as always happens, when somebody in a political position makes that kind of perhaps blatantly raw and honest, but politically embarrassing statement. There were efforts to truck that back, numerous apologies, uh, blaming the media for falsifying the story. All, All that nonsense happened. But clearly, we are now all the way back to where we were as a society, where we had been before when it comes to Nixon's the law and order push and uh, the the beginning stages of the war on drugs and uh, basically anybody who would stand up and say, I disagree with you, I think you're wrong and you shouldn't be doing that, is viewed as some kind of political enemy of the state by people with a mentality like Nixon and perhaps like Trump and his supporters. <laughs>
Ten soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I heard the drumming. Four dead in Ohio. I have lived from time to time in my life in the state of Ohio. This song has relevance to me. I've got friends and family who've gone to Kent State University. Of course, you know, they went there 25 years later, or, you know, 30 years later. But still, to me, the song has direct meaning. It's politically relevant to me now. As I keep one eye on what it meant at the time in the past and another eye on how it could be a warning of let's not make the same mistakes again here in the present. The last thing we need is to be supporting a political administration that is willing to use military conflict, unnecessary military, counterproductive military conflict, to distract the public from its own domestic problems. That is the situation that we were in in 1971 and beyond, and it feels a lot like the same kind of situation now. I played our Different Drummer in today with a track from 1989, uh, Rockin' in the Free World, off Young's Freedom LP. And I'm going to play us out with a much earlier track, Neil Young and the Stray Gators, a song going back to the Vietnam era, simply called War Song.
Hi there, voters. How do you feel? Tired of the same old vote appeal? Well, look who's back with a brand new style, a brand new look, and a brand new smile. It's the 68 Nixon. Everything's new. A brand new image just created for you. A dozen different finishes and so much to nest. He's got a brand new doggy. Not checkers, but checks. Now the Reagan can ramble, the Rocky can race. But Dick can jump from left to right and not lose his place. His 56 production was loaded with spike. His 60 was a copy of the 58 Ike. But third time's a charm, and if it's charm that you like, you'll like the 68 Nixon. He's different this year. The 68 Nixon is here, and he is liberal and conservative. He's humble and he's proud. He's more than just a candidate. He's a crowd. Yes, he's the 68 Nixon, a brother to men. So run and see him quick before he changes again. In every town and hamlet, he is soon to appear. The 68 Nixon, he's different this year. The 68 Nixon guaranteed not to smear. The 68 Nixon is here. The preceding was a paid political denouncement. Back to back with the Neil Young song I used to play us out of the different drummer segment was a uh, paid political denouncement, as it's comically called, from the 1968 election cycle. That's John Denver and the 68 Nixon, uh, the name of it, treating him uh, like a car ad, for want of a better word. Standing up and resisting war is a tricky business. Uh, in some cases, you could make an argument that you've got musicians who've turned that into their own cottage industry and cashed in on standing up and opposing a military conflict that affects directly the youth in their audience. But just as often, I've seen situations where calling out that something is wrong, that a war that is being conducted poorly or that did not need to be conducted at all, or where the case for war being argued in the U.S. Congress was built on a lot of misinformation or even intentional lies. You can stand up and oppose that and find yourself in more hot water, things that have as much of a negative impact on your album sales as positive. I want to share a couple songs back-to-back here. One, which did tremendous damage to the career of the Dixie Chicks, and their song, Not Ready to Make Nice, tells their side of the story and pretty much says, right is right, I'd do it again. And the other one harkens back to the Falklands conflict one more time, looking at it from the perspective of the people who aren't necessarily themselves personally going to fight in a war they don't believe in, but are being asked instead to send their sons and perhaps daughters into that conflict while actually building ammunition, munitions, and ships in this case to be used in the war. In other words, contributing to the deaths of their own loved ones in a war that Maybe not very many people, certainly not the blue-collar people who were involved in construction of war vessels, believed was the right course of action. I'm going to go not with the Robert Wyatt original version, but with Elvis Costello as the singer-songwriter, as he released the song on his own album, Punch the Clock. Say time heals everything. 
Just a rumor that was spread around town By the women and children Soon we'll be shipbuilding Well, I ask you The boy said that they're going to take me to task But I'll be back by Christmas It's just a rumor that we spread around town Somebody said that someone got killed in For saying that people get killed in The result of this ship With all the will in the world Diving for dear life Then we could be diving for
could be diving for power. It's noteworthy how Vietnam has uh, dominated the different drummer part of the show, both in the intro and in the different drummer segment. And from there, Falkland's Conflict, having a good five or six songs in this particular episode, not necessarily what people would have expected, I think. If you said, hey, there's going to be a war resistance song, where's the focus going to be? Would it be the Falklands War? I could have played another Elvis Costello track called Peace in Our Time that would have looked in some ways at Granada, which is an even smaller, not necessarily essential island conflict of pointless muscle flexing or potentially pointless muscle flexing. The fact is we don't know. We Gone is the era like the period in and around World War II when it was necessary to persuade a nation for the case of going to battle. I realize that George W. Bush sort of did that a little bit with a ton of misinformation on what was the second U.S. military conflict in Iraq. But generally speaking, we don't even bother. Uh, The fact that I don't know whether uh, the U.S. invasion of Granada was a good idea or a bad idea is because no one actually held anybody to task for explaining what the objectives were, what the consequences would have been had we tried a different tact. Uh, And, you know, a lot of misinformation from from Thatcher as well about what the feelings were about the people actually living in the Falkland Islands, about whether they felt they were being liberated by the British or not. So I think what I want to do here at the end of the show is look at different conflicts from a different perspective. Skinny Puppy, VX Gas Attack. We'll start us off with them looking specifically at the Iran-Iraq War and uh, the weapons used in that war that were uh, chemical weapons, war crimes, and to be honest with you, weapons that were probably persuaded to Iraq by the United States to be used against Iraq's enemy, Iran, because we were then operating in the Reagan era on a world a world policy of the enemy of my enemy must be my friend and therefore must be armed. And, of course, that didn't play well for us because those same chemical weapons turned around and played a role in both of the Iraq wars in the 1990s and beyond.
was in young hearts Even the old campaigners Have got it really bad Well we ain't seen nothing like it Since Coronation Day The street party sound I'm going underground To keep the rabbit hounds at bay Oh my, my, this war dance A patriotic romance No, we ain't seen nothing like it Since Coronation Day Take flies and blood is on the rise You know it's got you in its way You've got yourself a war dance There's a cheap sensation Keeping Fleet Street wide awake Everyone wants a slice of the jingoistic cake And the resurrecting Churchill And bringing national service back Fueling power and glory fever Makes for a sicker union jack Yeah, I'm talking about this war dance Patriotic romance And I know all you poets Have seen it all before About the stirring of those young hearts Back in the First World War Oh my, my, this war dance I followed Skinny Puppy with a couple of more generic general war songs. Flipper, Sacrifice. Uh, Many themes similar to the Metallica song I chose not to play, Disposable Heroes, but done with this post-punk sort of style. Uh, This is Flipper's second incarnation, where Kurt Novoselic, uh, one of the members of Nirvana, the bass player, uh, reformed the surviving members of uh, Flipper after Will Shatter's death and kind of brought the band back out again, playing some of the classic songs like Sacrifice and some new material. This is from the live album supporting the new album released on that particular incarnation of Flipper and followed it up with XTC. I mentioned during the Sound of Protest, and I'll say it again here during the Sound of Resistance, XTC is going to keep popping up in these particular uh, Sound of shows here in April and May and maybe even trailing into June. We'll see how long it takes me to work my way through the material. 
Because unlike Neil Young, where I can concentrate a lot of what I want to say about them in a single focus, uh, maybe focus on war resistance, XTC is much more broad than that. They keep popping up in meaningful ways in each one of these topics. This Andy Partridge pen song being a good example, War Dance, there's a fair amount of depth to it. The appropriate amount of accusation of politicians who are just a little bit too willing to turn war into profits. So we will hear again from XDC later on. But the other thing about them is I don't necessarily think I'm going to touch on them every time I could. That there's enough examples where I'm going to be picking and choosing as we go forward. If I get to uh, protest about religion at some point, which I do plan to do, shaping up to be maybe the longest one of these inappropriate conversations sound of uh, shows, uh, I may not pick the obvious track from XTC because there's too many good ones to choose from. That's the serious side of things. And hopefully uh, there's been enough of a blend of familiar and unfamiliar to bring people who are hesitant to invest in this Sound of, uh, Sound of series forward, uh, make the lay of the land a little bit more familiar. And I'm going to end this one in a much softer, lighter way. I can't make the accusation that the band Got a Girl is referring to the same kind of revolution that the uh, Jefferson Airplane track that Let Us In was talking about. But both of them crafted a pop song that was intended to be anthemic. Uh, perhaps even played in clubs, would be the modern terminology for it. Got a Girl released my favorite album, say the 2013-2014 period, one of the most modern songs I'm going to look at during this entire series in the upcoming weeks. I Love You But I Must Drive Off This Cliff Now is the album, and the song is There's a Revolution. Thanks for listening.
This show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows.